Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you have one, uh, to Proverbs chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, just raise your hand and keep it up, and we'll have somebody bring one to you. Uh, we love God's Word here, uh, and we want you to have access to that. So if you need a Bible, just keep your hand raised. We would love for you uh, to have one. Um, so we're going to be uh, in Proverbs chapter 6 this morning, and if you've you've been with us for a couple of weeks, you notice that we just finished a, a study in the book of James uh, a couple weeks ago. And, and then we've just been doing some, some Psalms over the last couple of weeks. And we typically do that over the summer. We, we look at Psalms, we look at Proverbs, uh, just as kind of a, a way to kind of slow down. Because typically what we're doing here as a church is we're going through books of the Bible so that we have a really, really good understanding of God's Word and what it teaches us. And we'll actually, uh, here in a couple of weeks, start a 12, 13 week long uh, sermon series through the book of Judges. And we're going to walk through that together throughout this fall up until Advent. And so um, one of the things I wanted to point out, though, is uh, Proverbs is kind of a unique book in, in the scriptures. Um, typically, when uh, we, we study a, a book of the Bible, most of the time, it's either a letter or it is a, a, a narrative, and it's one long kind of continuous uh, story or thought or idea that the author is trying to uh, communicate uh, either to uh, his audience or to a church or, or to someone in particular. And the Proverbs are a little different. Proverbs is uh, King Solomon's collection of wisdom and principles that he wants to pass on to his son and to Israel. And so the, the wisdom that we see in this book, one, is going to seem disjointed because the way that the kind of the collection works is it's just separate thoughts. You know, so, you know, you might have one paragraph talking about the proper way to interact in, in marriage or a relationship. And then the next paragraph might be about business. And it's just kind of, you know, Solomon's writing down these principles. He's writing down these ideas and he's just kind of firing them off so that he doesn't lose sight of passing along this wisdom that he has gained over the course of his life to his son. And the the wisdom founded in the book of Proverbs is centered around kind of one main theme that Solomon makes clear very, very early on in this book. And that is this, that wisdom is founded, that started where any of us want to go if we want to be wise. He, he tells his son that wisdom is founded first and foremost on fear of the Lord. And then it works itself out from that into practical insights on everyday life. So the point, you know, this, this term fear of the Lord is one, not something we talk about a lot in 2022. But two, it's something that if we don't carefully kind of break down our understanding of what Solomon means by that, or what the Old Testament means by that, we can get confused. Because when we use the word fear, right, we think of cowering, we think of something that is terrifying, we think of being scared. And that idea in the Hebrew, that word fear in the Hebrew, has that idea attached to it. But 
What's attached to it far more greatly is this idea of respect or reverence. Right? The reason you might fear something is because you're maybe giving something too much respect or uh, too much reverence, and you're, you're afraid of what might happen in response to that. And, and the reason why this term was used by the Hebrews was they knew and understood fully the power and the majesty of God. And because they understood the power and majesty of God, and understood that in, in a second, right, God could end us. Right? It led them to a proper reverence and understanding who they were in light of the creator of the universe. And the word that they would use for that would then be fear, right, respect. Right, even in those of us that, that grew up in the church, I would imagine that fear of the Lord was probably not something that we focused on a ton in our church background, right? Instead, we might focus on things like Christ's love for us or God's mercy or compassion, which are all things that are true. But I would submit that you cannot fully grasp and understand the magnitude of God's love and grace and compassion and mercy towards us as humans if we don't first understand the magnitude, glory, and power of our Creator and the fact that He would lay down the, the necessity of exacting judgment at times so as to give mercy to His people. And so when we bring those two ideas together, when we talk about who God is, right, and we talk about this concept of the fear of the Lord, what Solomon ultimately wants to get across to his son is that you can live a moral, upstanding, and right life, and things might go well for you. But if it's not in line with a reverence and love for God, it will ultimately be for nothing. It will be a waste. And so this morning, we're going to see three kind of separate thoughts uh, of, of things that Solomon wanted to get across to his son and ultimately to us as his reader because God has seen fit in his providence to have preserved this for us so that we could study it thousands of years after Solomon's life and reign. But we're going to see three things, and we don't have the screen for us this morning, so you're going to have to go old-fashioned and just listen to me and write it down if you're quick enough to take notes. All right, but we're going to see three separate things, three principles kind of for a more joyous life in God. Right? The first one is the idea of responsibility and debt. The second one is going to be work ethic and laziness. And the third one is going to be warnings against wickedness and understanding the heart of God. So let's look at these first five verses of Proverbs chapter six. This is going to be our first kind of principle that we see on responsibility and debt in light of honoring God with our lives and the way that we live. He says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. 
Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. All right, so kind of first principle that, that Solomon wants to get across to his son here, right? It's pretty simple. Do not provide collateral or backup on a loan for someone else. Just don't do it. And he uses language here describing being trapped like an animal who's being hunted. Now, how many, any, do I have any hunters in the room this morning? Okay, like three. Okay. We are not good Southerners, apparently, at Aletheia Church. So, all right. So I used to hunt fairly regularly when, when, when I grew up uh, in Virginia. And one of the things that you could do is certain type of game that you might hunt, you could actually set traps for them. Specifically for coyotes, that would be something that you would do regularly because they were problems to the farmers in rural parts of Virginia. And so you would lay traps to, to, to trap these coyotes. And, and when we hear this idea of a snare, right? Most traps, what would happen is once the animal was trapped, they weren't dead. They were actually still alive, but they were completely at the mercy of those that had entrapped them, those that had caught them and trapped them. And so the idea of what Solomon is, is trying to get across here is once someone provides collateral or security for the loan of another, you are committed to paying it back if they do not do so. You are trapped the same way that an animal might be trapped and ensnared if they were hunted. You are ensnared to the debtor and to the person you backed. And Solomon says, if you have done this, right, if you've found yourself in this situation, negotiate your way out as soon as you possibly can. Right, look at the way he repeats himself throughout these five verses after saying not to do this. But if you find yourself, he says, save yourself. He says, plead with your neighbor. Do not slumber until you have taken care of it. Right? He, he's trying to get across to his son the importance and the magnitude of the situation that they have gotten themselves in and to get themselves out as quickly as possible. Clearly, Solomon sees this as a very serious issue for one not to find themselves in, especially one who fears the Lord. Now, the question we may begin to ask ourselves as we're sitting here is like, well, wait a minute, I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of God. This actually seems to be like advice that is different from the way that I see other Christians operate or the way that I've been taught or things that I've been shown growing up over time, right? Like as, as kids, right, we're taught to be generous and to share, right? And Jesus definitely instilled principles like that uh, as he taught his disciples over the course of his earthly ministry. And so we get brought to then this place where how do we take what Solomon is saying and still understand it in light of the totality of Scripture and what we see in other places. So the first thing I want to submit to you is this. 
This is not a a one-off principle in Scripture. Actually, in the book of Proverbs alone, Solomon repeats this uh, proverb or this idea or this principle five more times throughout the course of the book of Proverbs. Uh, In Proverbs 11.16, in Proverbs 17.18, in chapter 20, verse 16, in verses 22, uh, excuse me, in chapter 22, verses 26 and 27, and then again in Proverbs 27, verse 13. He repeats this same principle over and over again to his son. So clearly, right, when we look at the life of Solomon and we see that God's word describes Solomon, although not a perfect man, as a good and godly king who was wise and reigned and ruled well in Israel, right, what God is trying to get across to us and help us to understand is that, the, that these principles that Solomon is laying out for us are wise things for life that will help life to go well for us. And I don't know about you guys, but life going well is usually better than life going bad, right? And so when when Solomon instills principles like this and he repeats himself continuously, what he wants us to understand is finding ourselves in this type of scenario where we have put up security or collateral or promise to pay someone's debt if they don't pay it is like being trapped in a hunter's trap as an animal. And one of the reasons why this is such a big deal, and I want us to think about this maybe on a more practical level, is what Solomon is trying to get across to his son here is not only is this a wise principle, but one of the things we need to understand is that if we back someone in this manner, right, we are placing and putting our reputation on the line. And, you know, we live in a season and time where using a term like reputation or talking about our character is kind of really, really difficult to parse through the weeds of, hey, do I want a good reputation or am I seeking some sort of celebrity status to build my own brand or have somebody worship me or whatever else you may want to describe about it? Right, but when, when God talks about reputation and character, what he's talking about actually is back to that original idea that I, I said earlier on in, in, in the sermon is that our character and the way we live our, our lives should display in us the glory and nature and character of our God because we fear him. And so what Solomon is saying here is that finding ourselves in this type of scenario shows a lack of wisdom, a lack of shrewdness, right? And puts us in a situation where our character can be called into question, right? You are on the hook for someone else. And I would argue that the principle that we see here in Proverbs chapter 6 extends to all sorts of things, loans, uh, uh, support, but even providing references for people, right? One of the interesting things about being a pastor is over the years, I'll have people come and ask me to give a reference. And I'll, if, you, if you want me to do that for you, I will do it, but you better make sure of two things. I know you, and two, that you want the honest reference I'm going to give about you. Because I will give a, a full opinion on, on who I know you to be and what I know about your character in light of that job. Because I have a responsibility to be truthful about you. 
And so, therefore, right, what God is saying here is that putting our reputation and character at risk is dangerous because if the character of the person we are backing is lacking, then you are responsible to perform for them. And in the case of a loan, repay back the debt that they owe. And a question we should even ask ourselves, but maybe, maybe it's obvious, is could you even repay the loan if they weren't to pay it back? If they were to walk away and not follow through on their obligation, could you repay it? I think Solomon's point is that we rarely know someone well enough to be a good enough judge of their character to take on this kind of responsibility, especially for a neighbor or a stranger as Solomon describes here, putting your reputation and character on the line for them is not a risk worth taking for the people of God. Now, this brings us to kind of an important idea of just what to remember when we're studying Proverbs, that this is a principle, not a command. That this is a teaching of wisdom, not a hard and fast rule where this type of thing must be followed all the time or that you're in open rebellion to God, right? Because otherwise, right, a passage like this would give us an easy reason to negate and ignore the commands of Jesus on generosity in the New Testament or the generosity that God expected of his people in the Levitical law. Right, think, think to Luke chapter 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan, right, where Jesus is teaching about this man who's been beaten and robbed and thrown to the side of the road. And Jesus gives an example of a number of people who just simply passed him, some of them even being religious men. And yet a Samaritan who in Jewish culture were uh, like the heathens or the culturally unpure or the, the religious weak, or maybe to put it another way, right, the ones that had perverted the religion of Israel, right, as kind of their, their thoughts on the Samaritans. The Samaritan man stopped, gave his time, gave his resources and his skills to meet the need of the man who was left for dead on the side of the road, right? He displayed hospitality. He displayed generosity. And he gave without expecting in return the very things that Jesus teaches. If you look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, right, when he's talking about just the spirit of generosity, look at what he says, starting in verse 12. He said, also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Jesus is saying that, that we are called to carry an attitude of generosity and love towards others. And so therefore, if we start bringing these two things together, what we see uh, Solomon saying is that we should not 
take on loans for others if we're unable to pay the loan, if we don't know and trust the character of the person, and if we do take it on, we should fully expect to have to pay it for them and not be paid in return if that's how we're going to do it. And to do otherwise is unwise and unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. I have an example of this where I've seen this done well. I I worked with a a lady right out of college at um, a local credit union in our college town. And I saw her writing a a check one day and then depositing it in someone else's account at our, our institution. And I was like, what are you doing? And she says, oh, yeah, like, I'll tell you the story. So she had a friend in her church. Uh, he was an elder at her church, um, a really, really wise uh, businessman. And when she wanted to go to college, um, she didn't have the money to be able to pay for college. And so she went to this guy and she said, hey, um, will you co-sign my student loans with me? And he said, no. He said, because I I don't know you, I don't know whether you can repay it, and wisdom says to me that I I should not put myself under that obligation for you. And so as she's telling this story, she's like, I was like really mad because I like knew he had a bunch of money and I knew he had helped other people in the past. And I'm like, what what is going on here? And then she said, This is what happened. He looked at her and said, But here's what I will do. I'll loan you the money myself. And you can repay me as you're able, right? And I'll charge you uh, only the interest that it would cost me, right, on what I would be getting in my savings account if it were sitting there, which at the time was something like 0.3% or something like that. And it might even be lower now, who knows, right? And so this is what she was doing, right? And and she was paying him back over time, right? And what we see in that example, and one of the things I thought was so beautiful about that was his his shrewdness not to be entangled, right? You, you know, one of the things that can happen as far as like the way credit scores work, and you guys that are younger may not understand this, right? If you are on the hook for someone else's loan, your credit starts getting dinged when they don't make payments, right? So even if they are paying back the loan, if they're not paying it back on time, your score is suffering if you are a guarantor of their loan. And what this man had done is he had removed the risk of that type of situation for himself, and yet he had still followed the principles of generosity that Christ asks us to show one another. And so what we see here kind of like in this first principle that Solomon is trying to get across is do not take on the debts or obligation of a stranger because it can lead to financial ruin. It can lead to a ruin of reputation. And one of the last things I would just point out and say before we move on to the next point is it can lead to relational ruin. You know, when you agree to take on responsibility for somebody else and they fail to follow through on that responsibility, I have yet to see a friendship or relationship survive that type of scenario in my 36 years of life on this earth. I've seen close, close friends stop talking to one another because of things like this. Families broken up over this type of thing. 
Right? And the point that Solomon is trying to make is why would we put our relationships at that sort of risk of ruin if we get there? Right? So we have this first principle, right? Do not take on the debts or obligations of a stranger, right? Let's, work, let's move into the next one. And you'll notice regularly, right, as you work through the Proverbs, that a lot of Solomon's advice is what we would consider to be like business or financial in, in nature, right? Because he had, as a king, right, he had a responsibility to manage and steward the kingdom that God had given him, which meant stewarding the resources and finances that God had given him. And God cares deeply about the way that we do that, right? And so this first principle, right, is not to take on debts or obligations of a stranger, right? This next one is going to be centered around the idea of how we view or what our theology of work looks like and how we respond to that. So look at verses 6 through 11 with me in Proverbs chapter 6. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. All right, so to start, right, clearly Solomon is not a trained entomologist because we know a lot more about ants now than he does in the passage that is being pulled out here, right? But the principle remains, right? Here he is comparing, right? He uses that term sluggard and he compares it to an ant. If you guys know what a slug is versus an ant, a little bit different on the, like the insect world of like movement, speed, and strenuous work, right? You can see a slug, it might take them six hours to move across your back porch, right? Ever put your foot in an anthill? How fast is that anthill rebuilt? It's like, I, I got stepped in one a couple weeks ago with the boys throwing football, I stepped in it, they went flying everywhere, I came back 20 minutes later and it didn't even look like I had done anything right? Because ants are crazy, right? I, I even looked a little bit because I was like fascinated by this and I was kind of like, man, like Solomon did not know anything about the queen or like how ants were operating, right? Like ants on average only sleep like four hours a day and they, they are working like the other 20, right? That, that's just like insane to me, okay? But what Solomon's trying to get a, a, across to his son as we, as we read this is laziness leads to financial ruin. And from everything I've read and researched, both from my undergraduate uh, life and from my uh, life as a pastor, it leads to lower levels of physical and mental health as well. That like a posture of laziness leads to ruin in multiple areas. And one of the things I think that we, we maybe need to think about here this morning is there is a temptation, especially right, in our age, as we invent things to make life easier and more convenient, to entertain our lives away. Guys, the, the number of people that I, that I talk to and I ask them, you know, what God's teaching them or what they're learning about the Lord or uh, maybe what they're reading or pondering or meditating on scripture, you know, sometimes the, the, the answer to that question when I'm meeting with somebody can be a little discouraging. 
But man, most people know what happened in Stranger Things. You know, I'll see people, students, I'm going to rag on you guys for a minute, right? Like I get this prayer request all the time. I pray for my time management. It's like, good news. The Holy Spirit has given you the ability to be the answer to your own prayer, right? You know, do, do things like go to bed before 4 a.m. Do things like get up for your 8 a.m. class, right? Do, do things like work on your project sooner than two days before it's due. Study for your test before an hour before it, right? And obviously, I'm, I'm ragging on students. The, the same can be applied to those of us that are in vocational work fields, right? To redeem the time and work hard in these things. Guys, our phones, video games, Netflix, sports, hobbies, God's not against any of those things. He's not. But we live in a time where the temptation to use those things is greater than it's ever been. And without discipline and self-control, you're going to be compared to the sluggard here, and it's going to lead to ruin. And guys, I've seen it time and time again. I've seen people lose jobs. I've seen people fail out of school. I've seen people have to switch their majors, because not because they lacked the aptitude to get the degree they wanted, but because they lacked the discipline to work hard in what they were studying. And Solomon's point here is that God cares about the work that we do. He, do, he just does. Right? If you don't believe me, right, go to Genesis chapter 1 with me. Right? It's one of the first things we see in the book of Genesis. That God cares about our work and what we do. Right, go first to uh, verse 26 for me in Genesis chapter 1. He says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? I want you to look closely at verse 28 when he calls Adam and Eve to have dominion. What he's telling us is you were designed to work. You were designed to be doing something. Right? If you don't believe me, go over to chapter 2 with me right? and look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work, to work and keep it. God cares deeply. Do you know that, you, you know, I think there's some people that think like, and I've heard this from people over the years. It's like, man, man we get to heaven. We're just going to sit there and like, we're not going to be doing anything. It's just going to be chill 24-7, right? Like God's going to have our favorite Netflix shows on repeat. And it's just going to be awesome. And I'm like, could you show me where you read that? Because I don't see it. 
right? We're going to have like roles, responsibilities. There's going to be things that we're doing because God designed us in his image and God works, right? It says that God worked for six days and on the seventh day, he what? Rested. Meaning that there's a pattern that God designed in us to work, to work with integrity, to work hard, and to rest when appropriate. If you go over to 1 Thessalonians, right, and I, I love this, right, because Paul's writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica, and in both letters, right, he has to get on them, right? In, in Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, look at what he says. He says, therefore, encourage, sorry, excuse me, verse 11, he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. I see the practical advice that he's giving to the church members there. It's super practical, right? Three things. Be quiet means stay out of other people's business for the most part. Stop starting fights. Stop being a gossip, right? Next part, to mind your own affairs. Same advice. Quit being a gossip, right? Then the third one, to work with your hands. Like you actually need to work. Right? And then if you go over to 2 Thessalonians and you look at chapter 3, look at verses 10 through 13, he says this. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, look at that, let him not eat. Not very Christian of Paul, huh? Right? Look at what he keeps going. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own loving. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in what? Doing good. God's point to us is twofold. We were created to work and to work hard. It's not always easy. Right? Like I, I love, like, People come to me like, I'll, I'll say, like, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, work, is, work is not fun. Yep. It's a byproduct of the curse, right? It, it's not changing. Oh, I just, like, I haven't found my purpose. Work is hard. No, work is hard, right? Even if you found the perfect career or vocation for you and were doing exactly what you would love, there would still be days, and I promise you, where you would not want to be doing it. Guys, I love being a pastor. I love it. It's what God's called me to do. I love preaching. There are days where I sit down Tuesday to start preparing for a sermon, and I'm like, God, get me out. Right? I love you all. I love being your pastor. Ask Jackie how tired I am after being here on a Sunday morning. I go home, and I just pass out. I mean, like when, when we were younger and our kids would younger, were younger, I'd fall asleep on the couch on Sunday afternoons, and they would literally use me as a jungle gym, and I would not wake up. That's how tired I am. Right. Doesn't mean I doesn't mean I don't love my job. Doesn't mean that I, I'm not fulfilling my calling. It just means that work is hard sometimes. That's the reality of it. And instead of running from it, right? What Solomon is saying is if we truly want to experience the abundance and joy that life can offer, we don't run from hard work. We run towards it intelligently and to honor God. And the second thing we see is that failure to work hard can consistently lead to ruin, specifically financial ruin, because one is unable to provide for themselves or the needs of their family if they have one. 
And I think there's something like really, really important in there, especially in that Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 passage that I just want to point out to us because this is something I see inside of the church regularly. Guys, we are called to be generous and to provide for people. We are. That is a command on followers of Jesus, but especially amongst the brothers and sisters in the church. If they are unwilling to do anything, we are actually called not to support them. I, that, may, that may sound super radical to what we've heard, and I, I will say this, that is not the cultural norm right now, but it is what scripture teaches because God calls us to walk in his image and likeness and to work hard. And so we see so far, right? Do not obligate oneself for another's debt. Make it our goal in life to work hard and to avoid laziness. And then we're going to get to the third principle that Solomon points out, and that's warnings against wickedness and how to follow after the heart of God. And I'm not going to read this passage in Proverbs chapter 6 because Jesse read it for us earlier, right? But if you look at those verses, right, if you're scanning through your Bible real quick, look at verses 12 through 15. And then if you look at verses 16 and 19, what you'll see there is kind of what Solomon is doing is he gives us three categories of things that God abhors, Right? And he's going to give some more specifics on those things that they overlap a lot. And what they're doing is they're describing the character of someone that God would label as wicked. Right? So, for example, right, he says in the beginning that it's someone with crooked speech. And then in verses 16 through 19, he says that they have a lying tongue and they provide false witness. He says that one who is wicked desires evil. But then when he describes that, he says that they have haughty eyes, which is another way of saying that they are prideful. He says that they shed innocent blood. He says that they devise wicked plans. He says that they, their feet make haste to run to evil. And then the third thing he says is true about someone that is wicked is that they sow discord. Right, so again, they have a lying tongue. They provide false witness. And then that last part, right, one who sows discord amongst their brothers, right? They're so wicked that they find satisfaction in getting their friends to fight one another or their family. And look at the promise of what God says will happen to that person. Verse 15. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Now, I'm simply a pastor, not a life coach or anything like that, and I'm not here telling you how to live your life. But if, I, if I'm reading this, right, here's what I would say. If you prefer to not have calamity come upon you suddenly in a moment and you being broken beyond healing, I would suggest listening to what Solomon has to say here. That, that would be my suggestion. And what we're getting here is a glimpse of what God cares about. We're getting an idea that God hates troublemakers and wickedness. He hates it. 
Right? Jesus even shows us this in Luke 17. If you look at the first two verses there in Luke 17, look at what he says. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I see what Jesus is saying there is temptations come to everyone, but if temptations come to you and your sin and wickedness leads others to sin and wickedness, it would have been better for you to have been thrown into the ocean with a millstone tied to your neck. Now, Jesus loves hyperbole, but the point is clear. God hates troublemakers and wicked people that bring calamity upon others. But instead, God loves those who pursue the opposite of these things. Right? Think about it, right? God, God finds haughty eyes to be an abomination, but he loves when we long to see his face and follow after him. He loves it. Right? God hates a lying tongue, but he loves those that will speak the truth even when it's hard. God loathes the hands that shed innocent blood, but he loves and lifts up those who display caring and kindness to the lowly who are unable to care for themselves. God hates hearts that devise wicked plans, and yet he loves those that seek and plan good for others. God detests feet that make haste to run to evil, but he honors and blesses those that walk in his wisdom and his commands. God detests a false witness but loves an honest one. God hates one who sows discord among his brothers. But as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Friends, the path to freedom in this life to joy in this life is the way of God. Not our way. Not in the way of the world. Not in the way of worldly wisdom that puffs up. But it's to follow and fear the Lord. To seek the life of a peacemaker, not one who sows discord. And guys, I, I think in no other time in my life is, is that idea more radical in our day than it's ever been, right? If you had said to me in my teenage years, hey, being a peacemaker, loving others is wise and good, right? It would have been just like an understood, yeah, like everyone kind of knows that, right? Like, it's, it, like being nice is good, right? Like bringing peace is good. Because I'm not so convinced that that's, 
the heartbeat of our culture any longer. I'm not so convinced that the world around us is not teaching us something very different. I would even submit to you that the work of the world around us is trying to paint a very different picture. Guys, look, I'm not an expert on this, but I can just say this just even from like a simple perspective, right? If you are on social media, and this is not me trying to be on some stand telling you to get off or whatever else, social media is designed to outrage you, to make you mad, to get you angry, because you'll stay longer if you're outraged and angry and they can push more advertisements on you and make more money off you. You are the product. And they're using things to push us away from what God asks of us, which is to love him and to build peace around us. And so Solomon's words to us, right? Basically what he's trying to do is he writes these words to his son. He's like, hey, look, I I just want life to go well for you. It's not going to be easy, but I want it to go well. I want want you to experience joy and fulfillment as you live your life. So avoid taking on debt and pledges for others. Reduce that kind of risk in your life. Be generous, but not risky. Right? Work hard. Don't be lazy. If you are, repent. Put it to death. And pursue the way of love and being a peacemaker. We should pursue these things because I believe there is a promise of blessing if we do. However, I want to point out something even greater to us here this morning. Solomon's advice here to us is just a shadow of the glory of God's goodness. Look at the principles that Solomon laid out here in Proverbs chapter 6. And then I want you to think about Jesus for a second. Jesus lived all of this out and fulfilled and did what we could not do. And think about it from this perspective, right? Solomon says, do not take on debt because we can't handle it. We're not equipped or ready to be able to do something like that. And yet Jesus takes on our debt for us and paid it in full, right? Colossians chapter two, right? Look at what Paul says to the church of Colossae, starting in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Guys, God does not design us to take on the debt of others because we can't do it, but yet God is able and did for you. What about working hard? Jesus worked and performed on your behalf because we failed. Look at Romans chapter 10. And look at the promise 
of Paul here says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I mean, you can't earn God's favor or love, but Christ did for you, that he did the work for you. I love where Jesus is, is, is talking, right? And he reads this, he opens the scroll of Isaiah at, in his first sermon and he reads it and he says, in this reading of the word, it has been fulfilled today before your eyes, right? Because Jesus did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, he came to fulfill it. He came to do the very thing that you and I cannot do, which is fully obey and trust the Father. And then lastly, we're called to be a peacemaker. Jesus is our peacemaker. Restoring fellowship to God the Father when there was no fellowship, right? Go to Ephesians chapter two with me. That's where we're gonna finish this morning. Starting in verse 11. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Look at the language that Paul uses to describe the Ephesians. And it could be the same language that it could be used to describe each and every one of us. Alienated, strangers, having no hope, yet through the work of Jesus Christ, we've been brought near. We, he is our peace. He has broken down the hostility that was between the Father and us. And as a peacemaker, he reconciled us to God. Jesus has made a way. Jesus is the full embodiment of the wisdom of Solomon. He is the path to true joy, and there is no other path. He is the path to hope and to peace. Peace. 